Welcome to Perspectives On, where we're giving the world a voice. We are a faith-based social justice forum where individuals give their perspectives on various topics. It's an opportunity to express their viewpoint, their stance, and their angle on justice issues affecting the community and globally. Each episode features guests presenting their perspective on things like climate change, the church, urban farming, and food insecurity, all through a unique faith lens. Come check us out. Give us your perspective. Welcome to Perspectives On, where we're giving the world a voice. I'm Lyra Lane White, your host. The 2020 pandemic has shocked the nation's education system and sent it into a complete tailspin, forcing schools to close right in the middle of the spring cycle. Since then, this sudden and unexpected event has sparked a number of heated debates among educators and politicians alike. As a professional in the ministry, I myself have raised both questions and concerns about the perspective or the lack thereof of our churches and mainline denominations that they, they have taken over this very important issue. I'm raising questions like, where are the churches utilizing their resources to provide alternatives and supportive services to parents who need it? Also, can churches use their facilities and their talent to develop, to develop micro-learning environments for both school-aged and high school students? Why, why not? And why is the church, particularly those churches serving communities of color, remaining virtually silent in the ongoing debate? Now, while politicians and educators have politicized the wearing of masks, reports from across the country are proving that exposing our nation's most valuable assets to a potentially deadly virus can bring both heavyweight consequences and dire circumstances. And this, indeed, is a social justice issue involving the welfare of our children. Now, just last week, schools in Mississippi, for example, welcomed back hundreds of students. But by Friday, one high schooler tested positive for COVID-19. By early this week, the count rose to seven. And now, as of today, Thursday, 116 students are in quarantine. In Georgia, the Cherokee County School District began in-person classes on Monday. But by Tuesday, a classroom was closed with the teacher and 20 other students now in quarantine after a second grade tested positive. Parents and officials have debated whether it's safe to send students back into classroom as viral cases have surged across the country while health experts are still investigating how children can spread the virus. Then there is the, the debate over the effectiveness of in-person instruction versus virtual. Are we depriving students of the, uh, the importance of social contact? Will they learn more at home? And what about our children in special education? Tonight, I've invited a group of educators these educators will chime in and give their perspective on this uh, very important issue. And I'm going to let them introduce themselves. Uh, why don't we start with uh, Cameron? Why don't we start with you? 
tell us a little bit about yourself and, uh, you know, give us your background and, and kind of toot your own horn here. Okay. Hi, everyone. My name is... Okay, I think, Cameron, I think you're breaking up. Why don't we, Dr. Bundridge, why don't you, why don't you start? Okay. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, my name is Stacy Brundage, and I am um, an educator in the greater Atlanta area. Um, I've been an educator for, uh, this starts year 25 for me. So um, I have been a classroom teacher. I've been a literacy coach and instructional specialist um, and um, a center director and owner and also um, currently a reading specialist. So um, I'm looking forward to the discussion tonight. Thank you for the opportunity, Dr. White. Yes, ma'am. Okay, Cameron. Okay, hope he doesn't cut out again. Hi, everyone. My name is Cameron Carter. I'm a preschool special education teacher in East Harlem, New York City. Um, I went to Spelman College in 2016, and I received my master's from Columbia University at Teachers College of May this year. Um, and I'm really excited to be here and learn other perspectives from other teachers. And my goal in the future is to be a teacher preparation professor in the future. So I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, Dr. Andrea Lewis, why don't you uh, introduce yourself to our, to our viewers and tell us about yourself. Good evening, everyone. I am excited to be here. I'm Andrea Lewis. I am going into my 25th year of education. I have worked in the public schools as a elementary school teacher, reading coach, and instructional specialist. Then I worked as a director of a child development center on Spelman College's campus. And I now serve as chair of the education department at Spelman, where I have been teaching there for 11 years. And I'm excited to be with you all again. Awesome, awesome. Thank you so much for that. And last but not least, uh, Crystal, am I pronouncing your last name right? Coniglan? Coniglan, yes. Okay, tell us about yourself. Um, yes, my name is Crystal Coniglan. I am originally from North Carolina. North Carolina, I now reside in the great state of Texas. Um, preferably Houston. I've been in education for uh, 19 years. I have served as assistant principal, principal intern. Um, I am currently uh, assigned to public schools, coordinator of Title I, uh, mentor program coordinator, and also right recently added to gifted and talented for our own students. Um, I have my master's degree in education, science, social studies, and currently I'm enrolled in Grand Canyon University pursuing my doctorate in ed leadership organizational 12, organization K-12 higher learning. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for that. Uh, thank you so much for that. And ladies, we're going to go right into our discussion. Um, we're going to start out just talking a little bit about, uh, um, you know, the, the recent conference. I mean, it's been going, it's ongoing. And we've we've had a lot of 
uh, as I said earlier, a lot of debate back and forth about about this issue. Um, we've all been watching the news. You know, we've read the CDC requirements. But talk about some of the online learning from your perspective, because I'm, I'm really trying to uh, glean some understanding about the controversy between, uh, I, I've talked to a lot of parents, and for some reason they feel that um, that they will probably not, their, their children will probably not be able to, to learn as effectively if they go online uh, versus that in-person instruction. So, um, you know, give give your perspective on on you know, on the, the issue. Talk about some of the online methods. We'll start out with that. Anybody can start. I'll start. I definitely feel that face-to-face -face learning, you know, works better. However, when you are in the middle of a pandemic and safety comes first, safety of the students, faculty, staff, and parents in the community, I feel like online learning is definitely a plus, especially when you are able to synchronously, meaning that you can teach in real time with your students so you can see them and interact and engage with them. So I think that there are, you know, there are definite pluses to the virtual environment and you can make it your own and still be able to connect with and build community with your students, but it does take practice and it takes training and professional development and it definitely takes um, just know how to be able to work with all of the different platforms that each school has, as well as make connections with the parents to ensure that the parents are able to provide homeschool connections for the smaller children. And then for my college students, just making sure that they keep up with their work and stay engaged and positive. Mm -hmm. Because I know uh, a lot of some of the uh, conversations that I've been hearing are about that that if you go virtual, then the students will lose out on that face-to-face -face learning. So um, I, I really would like to hear hear some some perspective on on that piece for sure. Uh, I agree with you what you were saying, um, Dr. Lewis. It was. Uh, it holds a lot of, you bring up some valid points. Uh, but if, can we talk about some of the online methodologies versus um, the in-person learning and how effective is really, how effective is online learning when a lot of students may not necessarily uh, have um, the right access for online learning? Because that's another issue as well. So I'll speak on that. So as an early childhood teacher, a lot of times um, I'm teaching pre-K, people get so shocked, like you're teaching pre-K online, like how is that working? But in the reality, my students actually aren't doing so bad. Um, that's because I'm making it fun. It's exciting. Um, it. I feel like, you know, towards the end of the school year, we definitely had like a burnout period of like constantly having to uh, Okay, Cameron, we're I think we're losing you. We we've lost you. Did you frozen? 
So I will say as well that uh, with the online methodology, uh, I think the biggest drawback to that online methodology was probably going to be from, from my perspective and my experience in teaching uh, early childhood education, it's just basically going to be access. You know, having access, having to you know, making sure that your, you know, the average person's Wi-Fi is going to be sufficient uh, so that it can, so that you can participate in whatever's going on in the classroom. I think that's probably the biggest issue now. Uh, here in, I'm in Atlanta, here in Atlanta, uh, that is a major issue. And I think some of the school systems have uh, tried to mitigate that issue by, uh, I think one of the school systems has just purchased or at least a number of, uh, of laptop computers and they've made that provision for, for their kids. So um, can we talk about some of the, uh, like what are some of the, how, how are you guys in, in education, how are you guys um, modifying your, um, your curriculum so that the online, or does it need to be modified? Is it just, I mean, are you just lecturing? I mean, what uh, have you made, what are the significant changes, um, if any, have you made in, in your curriculum wise uh, to adjust to the online learning? Anybody? I've, um, well, I definitely feel like we've made some adjustments. Um, just like you said, um, access was the main issue um, at our school. And because the younger grades, um, K through two, they don't have um, the laptops. And, but yet our upper grades, third through fifth graders, they do have access. Um, and well, actually, let me take that back. Um, I noticed that in various districts, certain schools do. Um, because even with my personal children, um, laptops, our, our district issued laptops. So access was not an issue um, in some counties in um, Georgia, particularly in Rockdale, because they had the one-to-one -one initiative. And th those children have been accustomed to online instruction because that was already built into the schedule like two or three years ago. So if your district hadn't done something like that, then I can see um, it being a problem because for me and my school, um, access is an issue because our students don't have the technology. Um, there is a plan in place though, to get technology for the, for the um, students in grades K through two. Um, but we have had to modify instruction. Um, because you have to consider at the elementary level how long children can attend and you have to make sure that the lessons are appropriate. And um, you do have to consider just making sure, though, that in terms of methodology that we are um, employing those lessons that are engaging, where children get to um, evaluate, um, analyze, um, explore, explain, um, basically like those five E's of instruction and also um, having a balance of um, synchronous and asynchronous lessons so that you have the balance of online instruction, that live instruction where teachers are actually teaching 
and not just um, posting assignments. So, and because when we entered the pandemic, I actually taught on Zoom. So I did a, um, a balance at the time I was teaching third and fourth graders. And um, we had a balance, I had balanced instruction so that I could see my students, hear them. Because as a reading specialist, I have to hear my children read. I have to model. Well, all teachers have to model. And you just have to make sure that your lessons are appropriate that children have first and foremost access that it's a I have to hear my children well all areas covered from how you're doing your opening your uh, work period your closing and making sure that um, we use a or making sure that I use a variety of teaching tools so that students um, are truly engaged and not feeling um, like oh, this is boring, because for children who are used to being online, um, you have to make sure that that the lessons are um, able to keep keep their attention, basically. But yet, I still have to make sure that they're learning. So it's a it's definitely a balancing act. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Agreed. I, I would I would think that, that it would be. Um... Does anybody else have anything to add to that? Now, I, but before then, um, Dr. Brennan, you mentioned uh, a program in one of the school systems earlier. Uh, is it was it one to one or one? Mm -hmm. Yes. Could you talk about? Could you explain that that program and what what that okay. involved? Yes. Um, actually, it's um, the Rockdale County School System has the one to one initiative where each child there's a device per child. So that, that would be the one-to-one -one terminology. There was a, um, a grant written, I do believe for, for that particular um, initiative to provide the, to provide the um, funds to purchase the devices. So all of the children in, um, they started at third grade and all third on up, every child in our, in, um, our county has a device that was provided to them free of charge um, by the school district. So, and it's that's just the one-to-one -one initiative. And it's a it's a device that they can take to their home. And yes, ma'am. They keep it um, as um, like my child has one, but we have to, of course, we have to um, sign, check it out. But but, and I think you get. Um, let's see. We got insurance on it, but yeah, she's had that device and it's a, it's been a blessing. They've had it. This program has been in effect. I'm going to say about two or three years. And the county also built in um, independent learning days. So the children in this county, they're used to um, virtual instruction just because they have like three or four days in their school calendar since they have the devices with just online instruction. So it was not, I noticed that it was easier out here versus um, in other school districts in the Metro that where children did not have the devices or were not a part of the one-to-one -one initiative. So the, so the school systems that are not, that don't have the larger populations, uh, it, it was, it's a lot easier that one-to-one that -one type uh, for, uh, the framework was a lot easier. 
Oh, okay. Um, yes. Wilson has the same program as well um, that Dr. Brundage was talking about. And like I, like she said, I think it's probably been about three years where the students have the one-to-one -one devices as well as the digital learning days. So I agree that in the school systems that, that did have the initiative already, it was a seamless flow because they already had their device. And I do know that for students who either left their devices at home or, or at school when schools closed or they did not have one for some reason that they were provided laptops. Okay. Okay. Anybody else have any perspective on it? And I'll chime in on that. Um, yes. Oh, sorry. Um, it's okay. Um, in our district in Houston, Basically, we don't have a, it's not called a one-to-one, -one, but we've been fortunate enough to receive grants and generous donations that have purchased laptops for our students. Um, I do know that I am in the classroom this year um, as a GT facilitator. And before the actual pandemic um, hit to where we had closed schools, I was already as uh, Dr. Uh, Brundage stated, I was already integrating technology in the classroom for my students. And then I was able to attend um, several virtual work workshops that have been able to assist that need, that um, um, engagement online and still give them the quality education that they need. Um, the issues that we're facing even though we have received numerous donations for computer laptops, is that looking at Wi-Fi accessibility has caused um, some harm. And now, you know, as the year starts, we are starting to partner with um, one of the local colleges that is going to allow the students to be able to come to the actual campus and use their Wi-Fi services so that students still will be able to uh, participate in their classroom instruction. Um, today was our first day back and I can see the gradual shift from, you know, focusing in on not only instructional learning, but learning that social emotional part that is going to be able to be in this impact on, you know, getting these students back in the classroom. So it is going to be a challenge. It's not just the laptop issue. It's other underlying is going to be able to be a hindrance. And that would be you know, trained on how to deliver that instruction using the laptop because we have a lot of economically disadvantaged students in our community. Cameron, did you have something that you want to add? Please bear with me. I don't know what's going on with my Wi-Fi, y'all. So if I cut out, just know that I'm <laughs> saying something good, okay? Um, so what I was saying was that basically I want to echo off of what every, everything I've been hearing. It's You can see that the students who already had high needs before this, it's even more um, exacerbated because of the pandemic. And we're seeing that a lot of these families where my early childhood center, this was where the child would be taken care of while the parents are at work. And so it's become kind of this thing, like how do I support my family and also ensure that we're safe? 
And it's just that our government's not set up to support people who have to make that sort of sacrifice for their health, for their child to learn in the first place. Um, and my school is really low income. A lot of my students live in the projects surrounding my school. Um, a lot of migrant, immigrant workers. And um, so it's a different level of struggle that I'm having to deal with on a regular basis. And so, you know, people oftentimes when I tell them that I'm an early childhood teacher and I'm doing it cyberly, they're like, how are you doing that? How are you functioning? And I, I still don't even know. I've been teaching summer sessions. I taught students today. Um, you know, I, I, I'm still at all that I still have some families that are really consistent and some families that are not. Um, and being that I'm a special education teacher, I worry about some of my students that have really high needs that need that in-person instruction because they may be on this autism spectrum and you know they may, may have behaviors or things that their families are not equipped to support them with. So um, what I, since like my school, we, we closed and the next, the next week I was FaceTiming my students. I was on WhatsApp face, um, communicating with students and I just went from there. Um, and I didn't necessarily have direction for my school on how to do it, but I just know that my students needed instruction. Um, so the part that is really concerning at this point is what are we doing moving forward? How are we protecting me? Because I understand the students' needs, but what about my needs and my safety? I'm, I'm fortunate to live in this apartment just with one other roommate, but I have coworkers who live with elder parents um, who have children. So you want me to go in school in this like white mask suit and then have to come home and possibly spread the virus to my family members. So I'm just really concerned about other people. I, I'm obviously concerned for myself, but I don't have other people in my household that I could potentially affect with this virus if I have to go back in person. Because New York City still has not made a final decision on what they're going to be doing with schools this fall. Yeah, now speaking of that, um, and, and we do have people from different parts of, of the South and, and, and also the North. Um, tell us a little bit about what's going on in the respective school systems. Because I know up in New York, Cameron, you're in New York and there hasn't been a definitive decision made. I think your governor is mostly concerned with making sure that you guys don't have a second wave like you did the first. Um, what what has been the decision? Uh, I think somebody said that, that you guys have, was that, um, uh, let's see, Crystal Conigland. Did you say in Houston, they haven't made a decision? Or, or you guys, talk, I, I, I guess I want each of you to talk about what's going on in your respective school system. Crystal, why don't you start? What did you say about Houston? Well, as I stated earlier, yeah, well, as I stated earlier, um, today was our first day back for our um, staff development. The dynamic situation, yeah, for actual teachers to return to do our in-service and our students are supposed to return back on. Um, the diverse diversity here and what well when I say diversity, I'm talking about an array of things that are going on, um, different variations. We one that has maybe 30 to 50 within that city. And 
none of them are on the same accord. And we have outlining um, boundary lines that basically intersect. Um, it's, it's sad because everybody is on a different page, even though the CDC and our judge and our mayor is saying that we should stay out of the classrooms. Teachers right now are actually in fear because in my particular district, that is where some of the highest numbers are. Um, it is hitting our brown people very hard. And as I think, uh, Lorraine, about, you know, the different demographics, but you are looking at about 65 to 70% of our students who live with elderly people, with their grandparents, and that do have underlying conditions. So the biggest concern we have here are students who will be returning to school in person and then going back home to their grandparents to live and spreading, you know, or possibly spreading the, you know, COVID. And we feel like our hands are tied. We've had, so, we've lost a lot of good teachers, especially in our district that have taken, that have resigned, have resigned so that, you know, cause they can't afford to go back, you know, to be able to be exposed and take it back to their parents or to their, you know, siblings or other people they may be living with. So did you say then that um, you say that are you guys, I know that there are different school systems in, uh, in, in Houston. And are you saying that it's, uh, are you saying that it's, uh, that you are going to go back originally virtual or is it all in person? How's that? What is, what is the decision uh, in, in, in within the city limits of Houston? We, well, the schools, the, the unified date for the schools to actually have the option of student in person is September the 8th. September 8th. But regardless if our, like my school district is starting August 17th, we have, yeah, September 8th is the official date that students will have the option to go back in person. Um, and that could be changing, but that is the official date that students will have face-to-face -face instruction or those that have actually opted. We have about 1,300 students on our campus and only I think it was 480 students that have uh, committed to do face-to-face -face instruction. And the other nine plus thousand students have decided to stay home. Stay at home. So that is the situation that we're facing. Wow. Right now. So that, so that's district alone. That's, and that's, for my campus. Yes. Yeah, that's the majority. 9,000 staying home and 400 and some change actually wanting to do it in person. Mm -hmm. Okay, got you. That uh, wants to do it in person, and then the rest wants to be at home. Got you. So, Dr. Lewis, uh, what's the situation uh, in the AU Center? I know you're uh, teaching in the AU Center. I know all yeah. the schools it's all kind of did decide to do the same thing. What was that? What was that plan? Yeah. So initially, the the first plan that rolled out was that we would have a low density population, meaning that each college in the Atlanta University Center would bring back a portion of their population. But then as the virus rates continued to go up and we didn't see 
much relief in terms of the numbers and the hospitals still being full, especially ICU units, then the colleges pivoted to online instruction. So the schools in the in the LN University Center will be a virtual for the fall semester and then a determination will be made in the near future for the spring semester. But also I think what plays a part is that in our in the black community many people in the black community have the underlying health conditions that um, are brought forward by the CDC. And when you look at the numbers and the percentages of students, faculty, and staff who have underlying issues, I think that also is a cause for concern on uh, our college campuses as well. And having students come in and move on campus from all different parts of the country, many of which are hot spots right now. So I think a lot went into making that decision to pivot to online fall instruction. And given what we see at the colleges and universities across the country who had face-to-face instruction during the summer school months, you saw an increased amount of cases because young people do not socially distance because they have been away from each other, you know, during the spring semester. So it's very difficult that even if a college puts in place all of these safety precautions, after class they go off campus, they socialize and, and that's what they do. So I believe that our colleges made a really great decision in terms of keeping the entire college community safe. So I think there's a there's a notion uh, on, among on this panel that the that the online instructions with the proper uh, with the proper supports in place can be just as effective as what as the classroom instructions. I, I, is that the notion that I'm getting from from everyone that's on this panel? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Yes, because um, that's one of the things that the media is is really harping on. Okay, this you know this contact with this social contact, and then and and then I hear some parents say that they don't, especially for uh, private schools and colleges and universities. Some parents don't want to pay for online instruction when they 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 feel that they're paying for you know uh, their child to have that experience, that in-person experience that perhaps they may have had when they were in college. But I think that I, I, I'm, I'm in agreement also that, um, you know, given the proper supports that are in place, including uh, uh, the, uh, the right curriculum and including having uh, supportive equipment and access to uh, Wi-Fi, um, that the online instruction uh, you know, based on what, you know, based on our experience can work just as well as being in the classroom. So it sounds like the biggest issue is a risk, is the risk that we put to one another's health. And I personally am uh, uh, looking at it from the perspective that it is indeed a social justice issue mm-hmm. when, we make, when, when we make a conscious decision to, um, to send our children to school uh, in the midst of a pandemic where they could put, thereby uh, exposing them to a potentially 
deadly uh, in a deadly situation. For, from my perspective, and again, this is this is my perspective. From my perspective, it's, it's almost like a, a form of abuse. It's almost like a form of neglect. If we purposely say, um, you know, and so so then that's when I uh, when I look at as a professional minister, I look at the churches. I'm looking at other options that we have. We have some very good options out there, alternatives to going back to in-person school. So I want to move on from that and, and get into, we've talked about, you know, the, the online methodologies and why they work and why we need to have those, those supports in place. So let's look at then um, what the risks are. Uh, I've heard each of you talk about, you know, being exposed yourselves as educators. Um, we know that because we've all, we've all of us here have worked with children. I have 20 years of experience working in early childhood and preschool, and I, it's very difficult to get um, children ages three to, I'll say three, to, oh, three to 18 to, to, to a social distance. The schools have things in place that says, hey, you got to wear this mask, we're going to take your temperature, we're going to do all of these things, you know, to make sure, to ensure that, you know, your safety, and yet we're still seeing uh, a rise in the cases. Um, we talked about the, 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 the Y campus been in, in, in the news as well. All of these things were in place that the CDC talked about, and yet we still ended up with hundreds of kids needing to go home be sheltered in place. But I don't want to do all the talking. I, I, I want to hear from each one of you about, you know, how you feel about the, the risks that are involved and, and and how can we mitigate? Not, I mean, it's good for us to talk about it, but what are your recommendations? Um, what are the recommendations that you have on, in terms of mitigating some of the, the risks that, um, that, that, that present themselves in in-person schools? Um, I'll go. So if we, all I'm saying is if like every school were to open, I just see an unfortunate number of teachers' lives having to be lost in the respect of keeping the school open um, and to educate students. And so it's like, how does the government leverage um, keeping students safe and keeping the economy and folks together in that way. And I think that's the main reason why schools are opening, unfortunately, is just because it's about money. And if it's about money, how can we resource and finance these families who are really struggling right now to stay afloat? Because some people seeing their child at school is the only option for them to get money. Um, and uh, the parts that really concern me right now is, um, Almost, I think one of the other panelists when we were talking backstage started describing a situation where a child took a picture of the school um, and ended up having repercussions because they sent a picture and showed only two other students wearing the mask. And it's almost like a censorship thing then too if you don't want people to really know what's going on in this school or how do you stand up for yourself when you are afraid that you may pass COVID on or you might receive it from someone else? And this past week with my students, um, we have been talking about wearing masks. Um, there's uh, some cool videos on YouTube that I've been playing for them. 
and discussing it. But I'm just picturing a lot of my students even licking their masks because they're three and they're four or putting it on the floor. Like I'm just like imagining such a <laughs> such a dramatic situation. Like, you know, um, at especially at the beginning of the year in my class, there are a lot of fresh threes. So there's a lot of accidents happening. There's a lot of transitional things that I just don't think we're gonna be able to provide for them. I like to hug my students. I like to give them that nurturing support. But if I need to be six feet apart from them, if my new student's walking into my classroom screaming because they just left their mom for the first time, where does that leave me as an educator to one, support them so they're not being traumatized in this process? And I don't think it's worth it. I don't think it's worth it at all. Um, and I think it's just a, a great time to revisit and reimagine what education looks like. Um, one of the other panelists mentioned that they already have the system set up. There's not this widely known system in early childhood that is a cyber remote learning system. So now we need to create that because this is going to be a part of our society, unfortunately, like the Spanish flu, like these things just keep happening. So we need to come up with the times and make sure that people are safe. And I personally don't feel comfortable having to be in the classroom with my kids this way. What is everybody's take on the, on the micro learning, um, the micro learning approach? Um, smaller, smaller groups and some neighborhoods are opening up their garages and their backyards and they're inviting, you know, to come in and, and have, uh, uh, to, you know, do whatever the, the study is on whatever the subject is. I think that part of that is also the difference between the haves and the have-nots in our country because for those learning pods that are popping up, many of the parents are paying teachers to teach those students and they can pay like $20,000, $25,000. And that's definitely not something that all parents can be able to do. Now, in communities where you know, students are going from house to house. For me, that's also a concern because that could lead to community spread. I think that families would have to have some really strict protocols put into place of social distancing and staying in the house and testing. But if parents are going off to work and interacting with other people and then they come home and it just seems like that just also leads to community spread when you have these learning pods and you really only know what your household is doing. You don't know what other people are doing and where they're going and who they're socializing with and then what those people are doing that they're socializing with because just like with the colleges putting forth all these parameters to keep students safe, we can do that in our household. So I can... Uh, make sure that my children are safe and we're staying in the house. But if we are participating with the learning pod with five other families in the community, I can't guarantee what those other parents are doing in their household. So I think people should really be careful about the, the community aspects of learning and just making sure that you're putting some strict protocols in place that everybody is able to stay safe while they're learning. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I totally agree with Dr. Lewis. Um, I feel that. Go, go ahead. 
Go ahead, Crystal. Oh, I, think I really had not learned about these um, teaching pods, and I think it was uh, two days ago. And seriously, you know, looking at it and if the parents are insurance, I know that the group that's starting here in Texas actually have um, accessibility to certified. And I think the um, taking advantage of, you know, participating in those pods because you've got some teachers that are getting paid about $70 and $80 an hour, you know, to to be able to participate if this if this firm hires them. So, you know, as a teacher and basically having the option to to still do what you do and get paid. I mean, if you're looking at seventy and eighty dollars an hour and you're looking at the four, and these companies are willing to be able to get the grant and the you know, the grant and loans to be able to to run these pods. I just think as long as the teachers are verified, you know, to be certified teachers and to be able to know that they are actually transitioning from a school to that particular company to, you know, because, you know, we have to be fingerprinted, you know, and if it's like I said, if you necessary step to verify the teacher has been fingerprinted, the teacher is actively teaching has an active teaching license. I think it's a wonderful opportunity. Uh, you know, out of with me, um, if it was something I could do part time, I would. But of course, you know, with the benefits that I would have to give up because that's that's the, the downfall is I don't think that they're able to offer the benefits that teachers are getting. But if I could do it part time, I definitely would do it part time. See, for me, I, I know I wouldn't um, because I don't feel like um, everybody. Um, is on the same page when it comes to uh, wearing the masks and um, and just proper hygiene. Because if, like Dr. Lewis said, you know what goes on in your household, but you don't know what goes on in others. And I do feel like strong protocols would have to be in place. And and yes, and and take and the whole hygiene has to be in place as well. Um, because even now I'm glad that we're virtual just because of that very reason. And just speaking in general, um, because there's such a huge difference in hygiene when you come from um, really early childhood, whereas I'm in elementary, the elementary um, area now, there's such a discrepancy in terms of hygiene because in childcare and in preschool, um, it's so strict in terms of keeping the facility clean. But in elementary school, I noticed that lots of times schools don't even have hand soap. And if, if there's a struggle to keep, there's a struggle to keep the bathrooms and the classrooms clean, there is absolutely no way that um, I would feel comfortable right, right now because it, it's a struggle just to have toilet tissue soap in a, in a bathroom in on any given day in a lot of elementary classrooms, um, I'm sorry, elementary buildings. And if parents are not training, having their children wear masks now, I, I observe that type of thing when I go out like 
to get groceries. I, I notice how many people are wearing masks and I practice social distancing and I make sure my children are doing that. But everybody does not do that. So it is better. It's safer right now for instruction to be online. It, it just is. It's safer um, for everyone. And we do have to consider the health and safety of everyone, the students. Yes, of course. But also the staff members that are engaging with them every day because those staff members have to come home and they have families too. And to, I'm sorry, but taking somebody's temperature, that means nothing to me because what if I have COVID, but I don't have a fever. Mm -hmm. So taking temperature, taking a temperature every day does not, that is not an indicator of COVID. It, it's not. And who's going to mandate everyone wearing a mask? Is that going to be mandatory in schools? Is it? Who's going to enforce it? And what happens if a child shows up without it? Will the school provide masks? You know, um, what happens if someone get, gets sick? And it, it's just too many variables that can um, lead to the spread of COVID if schools are, or every district that's going back face to face. I don't think they really thought that through because if you don't, if if you don't really look at how what 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 do the cleaning protocols look like in schools? Let's be honest. If you don't really look at that, and if you don't really look at how many people will actually wear masks and how can you really enforce that? And then we are we're all educators. We know how hard it is to get a parent on the phone if, if a child gets sick and they look and see the school calling. Really? Are they really gonna come and pick that child up right away? No. So that, that's just the truth. It, it's the truth. So I think that it's safer to be online. It, it just is. And, and that's just my perspective. It's safer and mine will not. I would not allow mine to go back right now. No, absolutely not. To add something right quick to what Stacy said. Uh, she was talking about the, the schools and the cleanliness. In addition to what Stacy was saying, I just wanted to add that right now, if you go out into the stores, it is very difficult to find cleaning supplies. Lysol spray, Clorox wipes, sanitizers. Are the schools able to get the appropriate amount of that information, of that uh, shopping supplies right now to keep the schools clean? So, uh, you know, in addition to how often are schools clean when there's not a pandemic? But right now, when there is a pandemic, do they have access <laughs> to the appropriate amount of cleaning supplies that they need to effectively disinfect and sanitize the classrooms, buildings, restrooms, and all of that? I also want to add to that. Um, I'm like thinking about like the playground. Like, what? Do, how do you sanitize that? Do we not go to the playground? Like, how do we play? How do we teach these kids to keep themselves away from each other? Like, I I don't know. I've just been in early childhood so long. I'm, like, trying to envision these little boxes that I've seen online with these little children. And I'm just, it just seems so impossible. And I know at my school, they have a cleaning staff that comes at the end of the day. And I wonder, will they provide that throughout the day? Because... I think handles need to be sprayed constantly. The bathrooms need to be cleaned all the time. And, um, you know, 
Um, sometimes kids have babysitters that pick them up from the school at the end of the day. Where are they coming from when they're bringing these things? Um, and my school system is actually talking about doing a hybrid teaching. So if, say, for example, um, we start school this fall in September. Uh, I have 14 kids enrolled in my classroom. They're going to split the class into seven. I'll have one group on Tuesday, another group on Thursday. And I'm constantly having to go through these different sets of kids to prevent the spread of the virus. I don't feel like that's effective. Even if the class was a half day, that's still not effective because Corona doesn't sleep at night and doesn't wake up in the morning when we go to work. It's just there. It's, it's always there. It's like an elephant in the room. So it's like, why put ourselves in these positions where we have to do all these extra things where we should be putting our money into making sure that all students have Wi-Fi, making sure my Wi-Fi is working because it's been acting up this whole chat talking to you guys and also for my students, making sure that they're having these technologies so that they're being taken care of in this setting. Because I feel like these people are trying to make this one thing work when it's not working and it's not healthy. So let's put our money to support students that aren't getting these resources. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now for sure, um, having, Having done, uh, having spent a significant amount of time of my, my teaching career in preschool, it's, it's virtually impossible, and it creates a whole other level of labor and work on the staff to make sure that uh, that items are sterilized, that, uh, play equipment, for example, toys, uh, things that are in the centers are are um, are sterilized. And so on a regular basis. So it, now it definitely puts a, uh, it just adds another element of, of work uh, on an already stressed out and overworked uh, group of educators. And to my, I know here in Georgia, daycare centers were the first to reopen. In fact, some daycare centers never closed uh, even after March 13th. And so um, that's always been a particularly um, touchy issue in, in the preschool level. Uh, what about the kids that are in special education? Because um, we're saying that we know that that's not safe for us. Ooh, child. <laughs> but for the children who are in, enrolled in special education, that's a, that's a def, that's definitely a, a that is definitely a, a dynamic. That is very interesting. So, how? What are your recommendations? What is your perspective on on how we can manage, on how that can be managed? Anybody? Well, that's that's um. I actually, I just sat through a. a May I speak on that? On that today. Um, I am certified as. I think there's a delay, so she didn't know that you were talking, Doctor Brundage. I think so. Go ahead. Yeah, I'll wait. Crystal, go ahead. You go ahead. I'm, 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 no. <laughs> okay. Well, um, that is a very, 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 very touchy subject with me because I am certified as a special ed teacher. And we just had training on that today. There is 
a no-win situation because when you talk about special ed, you're talking about special ed across the board. You're talking about those who have to have uh, assistance, wheelchair, tube feedings. And I just do not see how that coming back to school face-to-face would be an option for them because not only are you putting the student at risk, you're putting your own self at risk because when you are servicing a special ed child, you may get a cut. You may, there, there's, there's the limits that what could happen to you. It's, it's a sad situation because we are already, you know, being, offered this less funding. And I think that's what is really driving the push for students to get back in school. And that is because of funding. So now you got the special ed piece that is really part of a lot of funding. And I don't think that they're going to put a break on letting the special ed children come to school that's where a lot of your title money is coming from. Mm. And it's sad, but if you have to look at a population that is going to suffer, it is going to be your special ed population. Mm -hmm. They are the ones that are going to be affected the most because of underlying issues that they already have. And it's sad, but you do have parents Remember I gave you the number 490 or 480? How about 200 of those are our special ed kids that are pushing to come back to school? Because the parents do not, they do not want to continue to have those students service at home. They want those students in the classroom. So everybody, the regular ed piece, but you really need to be looking at you really need to look at that special ed piece because that is where the most traumatic situations are going to happen. Mm-hmm. Okay, so given that, Dr. Stacy, you can continue because <laughs> I know you have, have a lot to say about it as well. Well, well, yes. Can you? But can you talk about? Can either one of you talk about um, how? What can we do? What are some solutions, or are there any solutions? In this situation, for our um, for our special uh, our special education kids. Well, now legally, when you look at our special <laughs> legally, um, five hundred four plans have to be <laughs> students have to be served legally. Mm-hmm. So, um, and we in our training today, that was um, that point was reiterated numerous times they have to be served whatever whatever that um, IEP says that has to um, that's just the law mm-hmm. and if they are not and and the way that they're going to be served I know in um, well according to what I saw today um, our special ed population will be served virtually um, vir- virtually right now Um with the special ed teacher and the general ed teacher um, collaborating. And I, and, but yet there was not a discussion about children though, who require um, 
Like if a student has, like um, she mentioned being in a wheelchair or something to that nature, I'm not certain as to how they are being, um, that specific population is being served. But I do know that if a child has, is in, um, has an IEP, that, that IEP has to be followed. And a parent has every right mm -hmm. to expect their child to be served. Now, whether it's virtually, um, there are um, some supports where people do go into the home. But since we are in this pandemic, I'm not certain as to that was not shared with us today if those services are um, being continued. But um, but still, we don't want any child to be left behind. But it's, and especially our um, population of students with IEPs, they have to be served and we have to do a good job with making sure that they are served. And I think principals need to make sure that they're con in contact with the case managers, um, making sure that the children are being served. Everybody needs to know the caseload and what accommodations are necessary and just make it happen. Um, and But in the safest way possible, because even the people who have to go in to service them, they still need to be protected. Everybody needs to be protected and the children need to be served. So it's just right now, it probably needs to be virtual until um, those COVID numbers um, decrease. But to not service them, that is not an option. Yeah, it's so, not an option. So and so definitely that is that's that's definitely um, those are valid points. And to that, I would say uh, my biggest criticism of uh of the school system is that we spent all summer since March debating whether or not they're going to start school again or if it's safe. When that time, when that time since March up until now should have been dedicated to developing a, a plan, to developing solutions to problems mm -hmm. such as what's going to happen with our special education children. And so now we're at the 11th hour and we're saying we're seeing these numbers go up at the last minute, which that's another that's a whole nother uh, a whole nother show, because um, the science has educated us, has been been present and been screaming and yelling since March that we were going to see a second that we were indeed going to see a second round. Uh, of this, of, of what's going on now. We knew it was going to happen going all the way back to March and still, rather than dedicate our energy and our time to focusing in on, on developing a solution and a plan that's going to work for, you know, for this, for, for this pandemic, we spent a lot of time in, in debate on whether or not we should go back. Uh, and so uh, definitely uh, you're right uh, when they passed the ADA Act uh, back in, uh, I used to know, I used to know this by heart. The year that they passed the the, uh, the uh, ADA Act, uh, the, it makes provision for sure for that that the IEP is a legal document. It's a contract mm -hmm. signed between uh, a parent and it's the individual education plan. It's signed between the parent and the school system that says, hey. These are, these are, we're going to provide services for your child in the least restrictive environment, given the necessary support. And that's, that's just across the board. It is the law. 
So we're, when we're not doing that, even in the midst of a pandemic, then we're definitely we're breaking the law. Um, can I add something? Sure, go ahead. Um, so I just think about some of these kids, like especially at the beginning, my mind just kept going to some of my students where they really thrive on schedule, especially if you're on the spectrum. Um, and I really was, every morning I would feel for them because they're probably expecting that bus routine to take them to the school and then having to do these things. And now they're at home. How do we create a routine that best supports them? And um, I, I wonder like, what does it look like for some students? Cause my students are pretty high functioning, but like really students that have the feeding tubes that have the wheelchairs that are that might do certain stimming that that might bite or that need that para that supports them all day um i i just i wonder for them and i really i really feel for their families because this is a lot of pressure that they're having to deal with 24 7 now um and i also want to think like what what can um the school system really do to advocate for these kids because when i'm thinking when i'm hearing a lot of these conversations i'm not really hearing about early childhood and especially not early childhood children with disabilities like what are we doing to support them i know i'm doing my very best um and i have some kids that even hang up on me during sessions but they call me back but they'll hang up again but i'm still being flexible and having that i think it's like you were saying just trying to reimagine and create and create these opportunities that even though we're not giving all of this learning that we would get in a one-on-one -on -one experience, we're still doing our best. And how are we supporting these children to give them our best? What resources? And my school was sending a lot of uh, care packages to families. Unfortunately, those care packages for some of the kids just arrived last week. Why did it take so long? Meanwhile, when all these big wigs in government are you know, bantering back and forth with each other, there are real time things happening that can be done to better support people for the school year. Um, and I'm interested to hear more about how we can, like if they're talking about bringing people into the homes, am I only gonna see one child? Am I going to multiple children's homes to help them with certain disabilities? What does that look like? And a part of me still feels like that is not a safe option for the children nor the educators involved. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, anybody else have a perspective on that? <laughs> I don't want to do all the talking because I can answer Cameron. Uh, I can definitely uh, answer <laughs> have an answer for that one because I'm still I'm still on the bandwagon about uh, there are other alternatives to this uh, to to doing things this way. There are other ways that. You know, we can probably uh, that the church can, can get more involved. So, you know, I'll, I'm going to go down that 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 broad that that aisle and 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 talk about how you know how can the church, um, you know, how can the church take this position? Because I'm always advocating and talking about you know the church, especially churches that serve communities of color and mm -hmm. how, the, how the church needs to take uh uh. Some, some accountability for what's going on in this issue. And for the most part, from what I can see, for the most part, especially our mainline denominations, they've been silent 
And mm -hmm. I know plenty of churches that have they have classrooms, they have construction centers, and they can do. And I know that there's a risk. I hear what what my educator friends are saying about the risks that are involved. But I also feel like um, in in the church, the church can also mitigate some of those risks by having small, very small, um, you know, small groups. And a lot of the in as you can probably tell, I'm an advocate for microlearning. I think um, microlearning presents an opportunity for kids to, to learn in a smaller, small environment. Even even outside the pandemic, we know that the smaller the group, the more a child can learn. And, you can, and especially if you have a, a good one to five or one to six, one to seven ratio in any kind of educational environment, you know, you can do all kinds of things, including social distance, including making sure that, um, you know, kids wear a mask and, you know, all of those things. We did have one comment that I, I before we close out that I really wanted. Uh, we had one of our users to talk about um, the, the, the hybrid approach, um, just noting that the hybrid approach brings forth other problems. The district that this person works in says the hybrid plan was approved by the Department of Education. And the teachers who are parents must return because they have no choice but to return and send their children their children to school face-to-face. -face. So that is definitely a, an issue also for those parents who may be single parents. Um, they may be single parents and they have to go back into the classroom. So they have to send their kids back to the classroom. But again, there are or other organizations, the church included, that can provide a resource and can have some um, solutions within within those communities. And and I welcome the feedback, um, you know, from from uh, from the panel, from you guys, in terms of you know if you agree or disagree with with my perspective on things. I think um, I well, I do know that my district is. Um, that's okay. I guess, I guess we're I just we thinking alike. <laughs> okay, you go ahead, Crystal. We go ahead. Um, we're listening. Okay. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, first, I just um, before we go any further, I want to thank uh, thank you all for allowing me to participate on this panel. Um, you know, when you do things like this, it gives you the option to see another side and even give me some examples that I can even share back with my district. Um, but as far as the hybrid, I will say that my uh, superintendent, you know, she has been on it uh, since day one. And from the very beginning, when we knew we were not going back, the students, when the parents were given the option of face-to-face -face or, you know, in uh, or doing the virtual. And then, of course, within the last two weeks, we've introduced, well, they've introduced a hybrid. And how we're doing it, from my opinion, is students that will receive hybrid training would be your reading and your math students because, of course, they have to have that small group instruction because our state is still going to push the end of course test. So of course, that threw another wrench into the into the pie because we were thinking that 
the governor was going to intercede and that we were not going to be held accountable because of, you know, COVID still being as detrimental that it is. But, um, you know, when you talk about churches getting involved, that is an eye-opening situation. It brings back memory that I had with Harvey, when Harvey Houston, and there were churches that did open, and then there were churches that were mega churches that are mega churches that did not open to offer this. So that to me is something that you're absolutely correct. And we're not going to talk about the mega church here in Houston because we know the one that Kanye West visited. And that church is humongous. It is. And there's nobody in there. So why would they not open those services to help service some of these students like our special ed population that cannot go back to or should not go back to the regular school setting. But I think the problem that we're going to run into is when you talk about special ed, there's special ed funding. So we're going to open up or a church is going to offer. We know that that's going to add another piece to the pie. Are they going to be able to receive the funding? So I think the end result is going to be funding. That is going to be the key to everything. Um, I feel confident that our district and our leaders are really paying attention to, you know, CDC. They're really paying attention to local health officials. And I have to say that our mayor and our judge who is making those decisions are really thinking about what is in the best interest of people here in Houston. But you've opened up some, some things to me that um, I am going to share because I think it does need to be discussed. They've got the buildings there and using them. And like I said, the churches, they do have classrooms because they offer those services to children when they come in there. And I know, like I said, the church that um, was visited, that church is, is huge and it's just sitting there. And so that that's that's a good point. That is a very good point. Why aren't churches getting involved? Why are they not, you know, being some of the forefront of what needs to be done to us? Especially those I didn't look at it that way. That's yeah. that's awesome. And and especially those that are serving the community that are that are in disproportionately being affected. Um there's an opportunity, definitely. Mm -hmm. Anybody else have anything to add? I'll add something. It's and also like I, if you're thinking about it, if these religious organizations aren't open, why are the schools open? It doesn't make any sense to me. Like if we're seeing <laughs> certain places being closed for safety reasons, why is it that the school can be this guinea pig sort of experimented sort of place to begin with? I don't feel like hybrid teaching or working in small groups is going to be the solution to help these things. The importance of teaching children in person is there. The research shows it. We know that this is good. 
but what is going to project this society to stay healthy moving forward for the next five to 10 years? That is remote learning for right now. I think people need to get in their minds that we need to create a system of learning that is appropriate for what's happening right now in our country, in this world for that even. And you can see these other countries, their numbers are lower and they can start having more in-person learning situations. But places, especially places like New York City, our numbers are lower, but they're still very high. And they will continue to get higher, even if we do hybrid teaching. And I was having a discussion with my boss, like if I, God forbid, were to get COVID, I have to self-quarantine 14 days. What does that mean? Are those all of my sick days? Are those my vacation days? HR still does not have the answer for that. Yeah, so I even put myself in that position in the first place to teach five kids at a time when I can affect five kids who then can affect five more people. Each child can then affect five different people. You know how to count by fives. That's a lot of people. So I'm really concerned about having to do any in-person at this point. And I don't feel like that should be the main discussion. It should be how can we keep these numbers down so that starting next fall, we can be in person. If, we, if we're having these different school systems, especially these colleges, some camp, my cousin moves into a dorm room. I saw it on Facebook today. I was like, she's moving into a dorm room? Like, what, what, are, what are the numbers going to be in her campus come midterms? Right. Who knows? It's, it's probably very high by midterms, but at what, at what risk are we willing to put people through for right. the and, money? And, and, yeah. Right. And then, and, and not to mention what I can just imagine is going to happen in college football, um, mm -hmm. you know, six weeks from now when they try to play a football game, we're going to see what happens with that. In fact, it's already happened. Where the what Ivy Leagues have already canceled uh, fall the fall athletic programs, but some of the athletic programs that started the football program started up by having to cancel to can't to relook it, rethink that also. Um, were you going to say something, uh, Dr. Lewis? No, well, I was agreeing with you about the football as well as even on the high school level oh, because there's been yeah. some high schools that have gone back and their numbers. Are spreading, and then to Cameron's point about the college students who are moving in the dorms, and what is it going to be like midterms? You don't even have to wait until midterms. It, you know, next week, um, you'll probably hear about the numbers because that age group—they're not one to social distance. They have been cooped up in the house since the spring. They are so excited about their new college journey and meeting people from all over the country. And unfortunately, I just think it's going to backfire on a lot of the college administrators who've made these decisions to keep the schools open. And I understand that part of it is finances because colleges are afraid that they won't be in existence after you know COVID-19 goes away because of all the money that they're losing. But at what point do you put human lives over money? Right. So I had one to respond to my uh, my thing about the churches and Miss Dorsey, who's one of my YouTube viewers, and she disagrees with me. She said the churches in my area are not open and have elected to remain closed until 2021. So to open for small groups of learners is not possible. Okay, so 
they've closed. So to respond to that, I'll say that that you, they absolutely have closed, and they should they should be closed for worship services. They should be closed for um, for for choir rehearsal and Bible study. They should be closed, and 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 for for a n- number of reasons. But um, and I and I need to qualify my position on micro learning. Micro learning is a safer alternative. I, I'm a I'm a I believe that if I had my way and I was the one um, that could make the decisions for the entire country, I would say all schools will be closed until we get a, a, a good vaccination and the numbers of that when both of those things happen. But because of the culture that we live in, and because um, we're not gonna we're not gonna please everybody, we don't have a culture where we where we restrict everyone, like in Australia, for example, where they're restricted, making everybody stay in wherever they were last night. This is where they have to stay today and until for the next two weeks. In America, we our culture will not allow us to, to do that because we have this, this, this democracy on both sides that says, hey, you have to respect the rights of everybody. So because we, can't, we cannot please everybody, let's try to make some kind of provision. So my position on micro micro learning comes in response to those who say, "Hey, I need to, I, I gotta send my child back to to, to school. I, I don't have a choice." I'm suggesting that the churches offer that option as a support to those persons who do not have a choice, and our frontline workers don't have a choice. And so um, that's that's my position. So yes, they should be closed. But they should also um, still find ways to serve the community, and and, and I see you, Miss Dorsey, saying you know you don't you don't disagree with me, but you're advocating they are that they are advocating for the schools to remain closed. Absolutely, I, I'm advocating for that also. But because of the culture that we live in, um, you know, we have to try to make some kind of a, uh, some kind of an allowance uh, for those who don't necessarily see things uh, as as we do. And and uh, so in our last ten minutes, I wanted to I want us as a group to talk about uh, you know just talk about some of the examples. And I, they're funny examples, but they're not because I say funny because we've got Paulding County Schools here in Georgia, where a young lady took a picture and of of a group of students. They Paulding County started full open face-to-face learning school uh, last week. And so a young lady takes a picture of, I guess they were changing classes. He takes a picture of them moving through the hallway, this big gang of of kids moving through the hallway, transitioning from another class. And then she gets, so so it goes viral. And then the news comes out today that the young lady has been suspended. And then on top of that, on on top of that, uh, it, it comes out that the principal of the of said school uh, issued went on uh, the PA system and issued what amounts to a warning to the students that hey, if you you post something on social media, there'll be consequences. And somebody recorded that and posted it. So I just want to get uh, you know get everybody some perspective on that quickly in our last 10 minutes. We're going to talk about two, this one scenario. What do you think, Dr. Brundage? Um, 
<laughs> wow, wow. I'm thinking about this as a parent um, as well, because I have um, children in high school. That, well, I think that the principal is wrong um, because to me, the child posted something that, I mean, it actually did happen. It, the principal is wrong to suspend the child, in my opinion, um, and to basically threaten the children um, with consequences if they post things. Um, okay, it's a, it's a lot going on there because you can argue about um, free speech, and but yet at the same time, I'm not certain what their policies are regarding cell phone um, cell phones in school. So. Um, I'm hoping that the principal is not violating whatever um, their policy is, but but I think that that's wrong. Um, in this day and age, where kids have phones, they a lot of things get posted, and you just have to deal with it. And I, but I think that to make the decision to suspend the student, in my opinion, that is wrong, and it should be overturned. Mm -hmm. Okay, anybody else? I definitely agree. I think that, well, you know, I think the school system made the wrong decision to even open right. because it, it puts too many lives right. in danger. And to reprimand a high schooler for showing the stupidity <laughs> of the, the school administrators, I feel like, you know, they're probably embarrassed and that's why they don't want <laughs> the pictures out there uh, because it reflects bad on their decision-making skills. But I definitely think it's wrong that they are penalizing. Right. Students. It's almost like a retaliation. You know, it's it almost like a principal seeking retaliation over that kid. Yeah. Over a kid. And they're also just mad because it went viral. That's your school. Your school has gone viral because you look as Dr. Lewis just said, the stupidity of it all. The whole world can now see broadcasted that only two kids in that swarm of high schoolers had masks on. So that just looks like a COVID bouncing sort of party. So the principal is embarrassed. And I, I feel like that's a child's beginning of investigative journalism. So I give them kudos for exposing things that are happening and the injustices that are occurring in their own life that they're being afflicted to do. Like, do they even have the process for parents to sign a waiver to do remote learning? There is a waiver right now in New York public schools where if the schools are open, they can sign a waiver to opt for remote learning. Was that even an option for those children? Because if they don't, if you don't go to school, we know what happens. If you're, um, that's, that's illegal, illegal repercussions for a child to be absent from school for a amount of time. But what if that is your safety your reasons for that. So I say, obviously mind the school cell phone policies, but if I were a teenager, I would have been taking videos, recording things on the low and posting it on Twitter and Facebook and all those things because people need to know about what's happening. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. And speaking of that- uh, Well, you, you also have to- Go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> no, I was going to uh, add my half a second. 
I'm going to look at, I'm going to be the devil's, I'm going to be the devil's advocate on that situation um, for two reasons. One, um, the accountability issue, because, you know, we, we have received or we're receiving extensive training on what we're supposed to do for students and for adults. And I'm sure that principal received the same training. So the question arises where, okay, how did you allow all of these students to get to the hallway and there was no one there to, to check for masks, you know, to check for social distancing and, you know, you're endangering. So that was the first thing I thought about. The second thing I thought about is you have to look at the child that actually took the video. That could have been a child that actually was doing what they were supposed to do and, you know, wearing the mask and trying to let someone know, hey, you know, if I've got rules, why aren't they following the rules? So you've got some some students that are very aware of what they're supposed to be doing. So it's a safety hill. And then the last one would be, of course, I can see the principal, even though we know, you know, you're in the building and you're not looking at what's in the building. But he has to also uh, be aware that you're posting students that may or may not have signed that confidentiality form, you know, to take pictures. Using those kids that are doing what they're supposed to do. So now you've got the kids on social media. Now you've got the issue of, oh my God, you got COVID, you got COVID, you know, because now you've broken the confidentiality. So I can see both sides, but to suspend a student for that, no, I don't think that should have happened. But I can understand both sides of the situation. But to suspend, no, that was totally out of line, totally out of line. And, you know, I mean, if I could say, I could argue that, you know, confidentiality issue may come up because some of the faces may have been shown or somebody may have been able to identify somebody, you know. But um, is this child's First Amendment right to have freedom of speech? And so, you know, she took this picture and, and so I feel like her 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 uh, her First Amendment right of freedom of speech is being in you know if I were to argue you know for her to be reinstated that's what I would say and I'm like you don't have a you don't you don't have a, a, a ground to do this and that's grounds for for a for a lawsuit now Miss Dorsey Miss Dorsey says let's say the same will happen with teachers principals aren't required to provide info on positive test results unless there's been at least one positive result in uh, insurance. So I, okay, I guess you were uh, responding to another comment. And then you said if a teacher shares this info, they could be reprimanded. Now, I guess if a teacher, if it was a teacher that posted the picture, then, you know, perhaps, perhaps, uh, and we really don't know if it was a, it, it could have been actually a teacher that did uh, take that picture. Uh, and, and maybe the student. So who knows? But the bottom line is you have a right to take a picture. You have a right to speak out against what you think is important. And I personally feel that um, that 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 um, that children are being that school systems are putting uh, children at risk. And it is a form of, you know, it, it should be illegal. And speaking of legalities, the second scenario that I wanted you guys to respond to 
is one um, that's happening down in Florida where um, the, the uh, Florida Education Association, the main teachers association there in Florida, is suing Governor Ron DeSantis, uh, Education Commissioner Richard uh, Cochran, Miami-Dade County Mayor Carlos Jimenez, the Florida Department of Education, and the Florida Board of Education in a lawsuit that claims that the state's emergency order to reopen physical classrooms. Now, we know Florida is, for those who don't know, Florida is now the epicenter of COVID-19. And the governor, Governor DeSantis, has mandated that schools open, that all the schools in the state of Florida open, uh, reopen with physical school classrooms five days a week. And so the, the Florida Teachers Association is in a lawsuit and they claim the lawsuit claims that the state's emergency order to reopen physical school classrooms five days a week violates Florida's constitution, which mandates safety, mandates the safety and security in public schools. And I and I wanna I'm gonna I'm gonna challenge my any legal eagles or any lawyers that may be listening to um, to uh, let me know if if Georgia has something very similar to that where they can just mandate, you know, face to face. But um, there's a there's a lawsuit. The teachers are, in effect, the, the teachers are suing the state of Florida over this mandate that they have to go back to school for in-person learning. What is you guys' perspective on that? I say they should sue them, <laughs> for sure, because you are infringing on my safety and my healthy by my health by forcing me to go teach in person and threatening my so, job security if i don't go back i lose my job exactly and it's and then it's it can be a whole effect of a whole community and and i'm thinking about certain teachers that have to teach in high need areas where they are they themselves are being affected like dr lewis mentioned earlier about how these certain people already have pre-existing conditions. Like as a as a black person, you may have heart issues or other things. And now you're forcing me to not put myself in greater danger to do that. I hope that they win that lawsuit. And and if they do, that will be a victory for teachers everywhere because they a lot of times when it they're forcing teachers a lot of times in history, you see teachers having to teach in all these such devastating and dramatic situations. We are always the scapegoats and having to make a dollar out of 15 cents. And I believe that I, if I could sign a petition for Florida, I will sign it. And hopefully New York gets on the same bandwagon if they force us to go back. Um, because it's, it's not right. Because you're putting my life at risk and putting my family and everyone else in my community at risk by forcing me to go back for what reason? And you're, you're, they're the epicenter. Why are you open? If I can't go to church, then I shouldn't be able to go to school. <laughs> Period. No, right, right, right. <laughs> Anybody else on that particular issue? Wow. Wow. Oh, wow. That's interesting to me. Um, and I, I think that it's absolutely ludicrous that there is a mandate in Florida, in Florida of all places, but any 
Florida and any other um, state that mandates face-to-face -face instruction right now, I, I, I don't think that that's a good idea and it's not in the best interest of anyone. So, wow, that's, that's unbelievable to me. And especially Florida. Florida. <laughs> wow. Learn something new every day though, so. Unbelievable. They filed a lawsuit. Um, it was in the middle of last month. And so now they're waiting on the judge to rule uh, in that case. Interesting. Well, they have the right to sue, though. They, they have the right. Um, yeah, they do. That is they, it's yeah. unbelievable that they have that mandate. Yeah, unbelievable. I wish them the best, though. I, I they're right. The <laughs> Pray that. It works out so that any no one is at risk. But they definitely need remote learning, in my opinion, for everybody's safety. And so, Miss uh, so Miss Dorsey says, "I'm a Florida teacher, and I support the lawsuit, and I want to return when it's safe for everyone." Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely, Absolutely. I agree with you, Miss Dorsey. And it's just definitely not safe in Florida. It's not. <laughs> well, anybody else have a, uh, they want to share anything? Well, no, I just appreciate Texas. Uh, Texas, our governor has, has left the um, option of reopening schools to the local LEAs. And, um, and at this point, I just made a, a comment. Texas is, is is better off, you know, compared to what I'm hearing about Georgia and Florida. And these are need to be publicized because, you know, you, you only hear a side of what they want you to hear. Um like I said, it brings it full full circle, you know, to, to mandate regardless of you know what the situations are and with Florida of being the episode of high COVID numbers and deaths on top of that, that, that they are not leaving it up to the local LEAs. Um, that, that's very sad. That's very sad. Yeah. Very sad. Ms. Dorsey gives an update that as of today, the judge ordered a change of venue and that the hearing has been moved to Tallahassee. See, to, uh, to me, that when, that when something like that happens, it's to prolong the issue so that um, the, the order stays in place for schools to stay open. It, 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 pro, it prolongs. I mean, it's, it, there's no way that, that, um, that the state, you know, they, they probably know the state, the state probably knows they, they can't win that lawsuit. And so um, this is just a way to prolong, um, it, 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 as long as there's no ruling on it, then the order stays in place. And so when those types of things happen, you know, I saw something very similar to happen here in Atlanta when our governor uh, sued our mayor uh, and that really impeded on her her First Amendment, Amendment right to speak out about uh, wearing masks and, you know, and things that will, you know, that recommendations that were to be put into place to ensure um, the, the health and safety of the, the citizens of Atlanta, uh, as well as um, an, a, an effort to get the numbers to go back down. We're in. We're headed toward our second wave. We're we're in our second wave. 
So we've had quite a discussion and uh, we will have this discussion again because the, the, somebody brought up the subject of testing. So it's going to be interesting to see how the states uh, handle testing, especially as it be, gets closer and closer in the spring, uh, because uh, especially the Atlanta public school system relies very heavily on testing in terms of trying to evaluate uh, its effectiveness in terms of its curriculum and are they instructional uh, facilitating. So they rely very heavily on, on testing. And in the state of Georgia in particular has a history of having some low test scores in comparison to the rest of the country. So it's going to be that subject of testing is going to be a hot topic in education. And we will certainly reconvene this, uh, this discussion. I want to thank everyone that has tuned in uh, and, and, and listened. I thank Ms. Dorsey, our YouTube uh, viewer who, uh, who has engaged us and we, you know, we welcome, we welcome her back the next time that we meet on this issue. And I, I want to thank the, the educators that I have invited uh, to, to share, uh, bring some very interesting and, and very valid uh, perspectives on, uh, on this issue. And, um, and, and, and thank everyone. Thank you for your participation. And, and, and you are invited to come back when we reconvene. Uh, this discussion probably closer to the end of this semester because we want to look at you know the effectiveness of the online and, and, and talk about what what became of these decisions. And so on that note, I want to thank you all for listening, everyone for listening. A special thanks to Kisa Public Radio, one of our partners. And as we leave you, please remember the those famous words of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, that whatever affects one affects us all. Whatever, whichever, whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Good night, everybody. I want my panelists to stay until the outro is finished. Welcome to Perspectives On, where we're giving the world a voice. We are a faith-based social justice forum where individuals give their perspectives on various topics. It's an opportunity to express their viewpoint, their stance, and their angle on justice issues affecting the community and globally. Each episode features guests presenting their perspective on things like climate change, the church, urban farming, and food insecurity, all through a unique faith lens. Come check us out. Give us your perspective.